last week we began a very, very simple message on the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. Bereshish berra, Elohim et Hashemaim wa'it haretz. And we focused upon the two untranslatable words, eth, eth. And the second time it's wa'it, because it adds the term and. Those untranslatable words turn out to be some of the most significant and some of the most dynamic expressions in the word because they happen to be the, the Aleph and the Tau, which is the first and the last verse in the English vocabulary, in the Hebrew vocabulary, the Alpha and the Omega, in the Greek, the A and Z in English. And we saw how that represented the Lord Jesus the Christ. And so we looked at the first of the three diverse propositions, the literal rendering. Let me take a very, very quick pass at the next two, which happens to be not just the factual, but the figurative, and then the fallacious. The figurative. The reason why I want to talk about the figurative aspect of interpretation is this. By and large, 80% of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ view scriptures allegorically. About 20% view it factually. From their perspective, they think that it's made up of ideas and stories, illusions, and sometimes illusions. And so let me look at this idea of um, figurative for a moment. The Jews view scripture from five positions. There is what they call the Peshat, which is what we would call the simple or the literal method of interpretation. That is, what it says is what it means. Now, in all honesty, most fundamental Christians treat the scripture this way. We believe what it says, we accept it for what it says, and we stand upon it. For the Jew, that's called Peshat. The second way that they translate scripture is what they call remets. Remets literally means it's illusion or it's a hint. It gives an idea. It suggests something that when you read the scripture, it drops something into your heart which points to something else. It's pointed to an, a greater sense of truth, a greater understanding of what's going on. Then there's darush, which is inference, and of course the fourth is sod, which is the mystical element that there are secrets hidden in every word which only the Lord can reveal. And we know this aspect. How many times have you read the scriptures? The same scripture over and over and over again, then one day you read it, oh! That's what the Jews call sod. You've 
suddenly caught a secret. You've caught something which has been hidden in that scripture all along. It's new to you, but it's always been embodied in that part of scripture. It took the Holy Spirit to enlighten it to you. The fifth is a lot more mystical because it's called Grammatia. Grammatia is everything they believe that the whole universe is a, is a mathematical design. It's a digital expression. And that every letter, every word, every idea has a mathematical association to it. And so from this, they come up with all kinds of strange ideas. Because every letter has a different, has a different number. And so if a word, the numbers of the letters of the word comes to 40, they simply say, well, if I can find another word which comes to 40, they're brothers. And so they have this mystical idea of linking this, these words which seem to have no connection whatsoever, and they do it on the basis of numbers. Now, I believe in numbers. It goes before Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. You'll catch it in, in, in a little while. That's in the Bible, I think. But I don't believe in the way that they present the numbers. However, let me look at this figurative interpretation with you for a moment. It started in Alexandria, Egypt, and it came out of what the Jews were teaching that as they presented their five-fold interpretation of scripture, so the church began to pick up on some of these ideas. At first, it really was profitable. At first, it was really delightful. At first, it was inspirational because they were seeing pictures and ideas in various parts of scriptures. It became what we would call typological, in which you take everything as a type and forget its actual meaning, that it means something else. And so they talked of Joseph being a true representative of Jesus. They talked about all kinds of delightful things. This idea of type. However, it took a turn because somewhere along the line they not only began to see types and shadows in the scripture they began to remove the literal meaning of scripture and they started this with the prophetic word there was the emerging expression of anti-semitism and so they began to Look and say, well, when the Old Testament speaks of Israel, it's not speaking of the Jews, it's speaking of the church. And so they developed a brand new theory on the Old Testament that Israel was no longer relevant 
It was the church that was in vogue. And that is the dominant theory, even to, to this day, as far as the liturgical church is concerned. That's why you can get the Presbyterian Church of America simply asking our nation and asking our government to withdraw support for Israel because modern-day Israel is a non-entity because Israel is simply a type of the church. Now, I have a problem with that. For many reasons. But it didn't stop there. They not only began to typify that of Israel, they began to make the miracles simply pictures. And so there was no such thing as a flood. Noah and the flood was simply a picture of how a good man is supposed to react in a rebellious society. There was no such thing as Jonah and the fish. That again was to show how God deals with his people when they refuse to walk in his way. But they went further. They not only rejected the miracles, they rejected creation. That was definitely a small story, a figment of the imagination, but they went further. And they began to acknowledge the fact that even the resurrection is just a story. That Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, he rose in the spirit, and that in the rising of the spirit, that we too can rise in the spirit. The idea of figurative interpretation. And yet when you look at the, the way the Jews understood that originally, you see all kinds of beautiful pictures. For instance, when the, the Jew would interpret the the simple word Israel. They would simply say, okay, it underscores a humble beginning and it underscores a magnificent destiny. Where do you get that from? Israel. Because the Y in Israel is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the Yod. And so the Yod, in their interpretation, speaks of humility, humble beginnings. And after all, the Lord simply said, I did not set my affection on you or choose you because you are more numerous than other people. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Humble beginnings. Well, Where'd you get the great destiny from? Well, Israel. El is Lamed. And Lamed happens to be the largest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's a big G. Twice as big as almost all the other letters put together. So they said, see, it starts small, Yud. It ends great, Lamed. Because that's where Israel is going. 
It started in a very, very minute manner, struggled just like our school, continued, and finally came to be a magnificent entity. And so the spiritualizing of the tooth is a very, very delightful way to look at the word of God, but there are limits to it, and you need to understand that God wants us to first of all look at it literally, and then if you want to look at it spiritually, that's fine. Because the church had become so bound to the literal form, to the liturgical format, it slowly but surely sunk into total darkness. Until the beginning of the 18th century, even after the Reformation, the church was still struggling. It had a little bit of light, but it was still struggling with all the baggage that it had collected over the years. God raised up a man. His name was John Darby. Darby was one of the sharpest guys. Perhaps it's simply the sharpest knife in the drawer or the brightest bulb in, on, the, on the tree. Whatever you want to call him, John was unusual, both in his instinct and in his insight and in his love for God. And in reading the book of Isaiah, he began to see, first of all, that this spiritualizing of the Old Testament was wrong, that Israel was real. Israel had a future, that the promises of a kingdom to come was biblical. And so he began to seek the Lord and ask the Lord, help me. Then he made this mistake. He was right philosophically, but he came to the conclusion, I can't find the church. There is no church. And whenever you come to that position, you're making a grave mistake. Oh, he could see the cathedrals. Oh, he could see the, the great uh, obelisks to um, a church which had lost its way. But you're looking for the church. And we know you can find the church. For Jesus said it this way. Look for my presence. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how large or how small the crowd. Look for my presence. For where two or more are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst, says the Lord. That's where the church is. The size of the crowd is not all that important, or it is for the, for the individual concerned, but as far as the presence is concerned, all you need is two in his name, and that will bring forth the manifestation of the presence of the Lord. Okay, that didn't mean anything to you, so let me go on. Look at the, what I call the fictitious evaluation of the narrative of Genesis chapter 1. 
again, I have little interest in looking at this in detail except to make some comments. I am convinced personally that the Genesis account addresses and answers the postulation of every false religious system which is known to men. Atheism claims there is no God. Genesis proposed that all things were created by God. Pantheism asserts God is in everything. Genesis decrees that God is transcendent and distinctive from creation. Polytheism proposes there are many gods. Genesis affirms the fact there is one true God. Materialism suggests the universe is eternal. Genesis indicates it had a beginning. Humanism states that humans determine the identity of reality. Genesis decrees that God is the one that identifies reality. Evolution indicates everything evolved gradually. Genesis contends creatio el nihilo and that creation is the prerogative of God, that he brought what is from nothing and manifested for the glory of his name. Uniformitarianism claims that everything is as it's always been. Genesis reveals God intervening in history. The reason for there being such hostility to Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 is the divine factor. If creation is credible, if God is the cause, then the issue is not what do I think about him, the issue is what does he think about me? And we know what he thinks about us. God so loved the world that he not only created it, but he gave his son to be a ransom. The scriptures underscore the fact that as we look from the time of the Reformation, where the church, which had lost its way and become dead, began to return to life, the Reformation restored the truth of justification by faith. Then holiness was restored to church, that we should live like Jesus. Then evangelism was brought back to the church, that the church needed to preach the gospel to every creature. And then the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit was restored to the church, the ability to get the job done. And in the last century, the church has achieved more by the dynamic of the Holy Spirit than it had achieved hitherto in all the period of time from the death and resurrection of Jesus right up to the beginning of the 20th century. That is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The tragedy is, or the infamy is rather, as the church was coming back to life, the enemy made sure that society as a whole would begin to deteriorate, starting 
with the Renaissance, going through the Enlightenment, and then the Industrial Revolution. It gave rise to the fallacious concept. Man does not need God because man is self-sufficient. That lie is the lie that penetrates every society which is not Christian today. We can do it. We can do it on our own. We don't need God. Therefore, there is no God, and therefore, God is dead. That whole thing is wrapped around the fact man exalts himself rather than exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to look at the second triad, and hopefully you'll find this a little more interesting. The second triad has to do with the divine powers. Or the, the first triad, the dramatic propositions, factual, figurative, or fallacious. And please understand, I'm just scratching the surface. I'm just floating over this, okay? Now we come to second. Again, it's a triad, the three powers. When looking at Genesis chapter 1, you're reading the revelation of creation from a heavenly perspective. It's in the context and concept that's beyond our dimension of space and time. It's an otherworldliness. In the beginning, God. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. When you read Genesis chapter 2, it's the rehearsal of creation from a human perspective. In the opening verses of Genesis 1, it's all about God, what he did and how he did it, and what he produced. When you come to Genesis chapter 2, you find a new figure coming on the scene. That happens to be Adam, or man. And so from chapter 2 onward, we have creation from a human perspective. But that's outside of my scope this evening. So let me look at the three powers that's documented in the first three verses. In the beginning, God. And the earth was, was, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God. And God said. There you have the three dynamic powers which are evidenced in the act of creation. Elohim, the divine power, to put it more literally, the creative agent. Elohim is one of the several titles which is ascribed to God. The title is interesting because it's a plural noun accompanied with singular verbs, 
which causes some problems when it comes to translation. And yet most of the Old Testament place it in this category. A plural noun a, with singular verbs. In Hebrew, whenever a certain noun ends with I am, im, such as seraph, im, cherub, im, it's in the plural. Elohim is an indication of it being a plural. However, in so saying, there is a self-disclosure of God given in this opening segment. His self-disclosure as El, E-L, is the word for power. The plural implies his power is exhibited in a multiplicity of ways. He's not simply powerful in one arena. He happens to be all powerful. And this is the introduction that we are given to our God in the opening verse of the Bible. Elohim, his power is unlimited, and his power is multifaceted. From the sages, the Hebrew sages' point of view, the anomaly of this plurality implies the fullness of the divine nature. They speak in hushed terms and suggest he is the ultimate unity. Perhaps the plural is best explained this way. Elohim underscores the plentitude of his might or the exceptional dignity and his unlimited greatness. In him are united all the powers of eternity and infinity. God, when we say God is great, that is one of the biggest understatements that we can ever give. God is the all-consuming, all-majestic, almighty, all-powerful, and the list goes on. Words cannot describe the majesty and the might of our God. But this plurality, as defined by them because of its association with a singularity of verb, underscores unity and the self-disclosure of his unity is given to us in Deuteronomy chapter four, chapter six, verse four. It's called the Shema. Shema Israel Yahweh, Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Ancient idolaters 
were convinced that one God was incapable of such contradictions of behavior such as justice and mercy, patience and jealousy, giver of rewards, the exactor of punishment. Therefore, they postulate the idea there must be more than one God. In fact, they came to the fact there was one God for each particular behavior. The Bible says no. The Bible declares that God is one because the changes that we see are not in him, but are our perceptions of him. God is just unmerciful at the same time. God is jealous, unloving at the same time. There is no contradiction in his being. There is no self-destructive force in his nature. There are no oxymoron tendencies in his character. God is one. Elohim. But when he says God is one, he alone is God and there is no other. But there's another self-disclosure. He not only disclosed himself as El, he also disclosed himself as Yahweh. And Yahweh underscored the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God, that as the covenant-maker, he is ever faithful. And as the covenant-creator, he is all-sufficient. Church, God is great. God is awesome. When we try to define God, all we're doing is showing our ignorance, not our brightness. Because he's beyond human comprehension. He's beyond description. God is God and God alone. As the creator, he is all sufficient. Isaiah, who has been called the prince of the prophets, in his vision embraced him both in the past, in the present, and in the future. In viewing him in the past, Isaiah raises a problem for most theologians because in Isaiah 45, he said this, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. Now, we, we believe that. He fashioned and made the earth. He founded it. But then he says, he did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is none other.
When Isaiah used the text, Kikohama, Yahweh, Bori Hashemaim, He that creates the heavens, he's using the same verb which is used in the opening verse of Genesis 1, bara, to create. He uses the same words which are used in other contexts. It simply says, he squeezed it into shape or molded it into form as a potter would mold a vessel. That's underscored by the, by the verb yatsa and kun. But then he makes this difficult statement. He hath established it, lo tohu bra laheshbet yatsara. He created it not in vain. Now we know what Genesis 1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth is not form and void. The tohu vabohu challenge. And so scholars ask the question, in this contradiction of term that given by Isaiah and that given by Moses in the Genesis account, is he suggesting that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that there's a gap. The earth is without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. You cannot prove that from the text because the term wa and the earth is a continuation of verse 1. But from Isaiah, it seems as though there is a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. That God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. If that is the case, and I'm not saying it is because I don't know. I was not there when it happened. I just looked that old. <laughs> but if that is the case, that would answer every question which is raised in geological circles with regard to the creation of our planet. But we do not know. But the, the hint is there, and that's where you get the interpretation aspect that I met given by the Hebrews. There's a hint there that it was created, and it was created with a purpose. And the purpose was for it to be inhabited. It was not created in vain. And that's why he squeezed it into form so that it might be inhabited. But Isaiah also saw the future. 
he saw the glorious reign of the Lord. Oh, you've heard Vic say this over and over and over again. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Yahweh Sevaot, Ma'alo Ka'al Haaretz Kabo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth reflects his glory. That everywhere he's put his finger, he's left his thumbprint. I speak as a fool. Wherever you go, you're exhibiting the thumbprint of God. Sometimes called sealed is the term, the thumbprint of God. He's got a mark on you. And that mark is an indication that you belong to him. And I must be honest with you, I like that. I'm glad I belong to Jesus. And from the very, very beginning, it was God's plan, it was God's purpose, it was the, the, the enabling of his power that allows each one of us to become his thumbprint. That wherever we go, whether our behavior is good or bad, we are leaving an atmosphere behind. And that atmosphere is either an indication that we are a true reflection of his thumbprint or we are a negative expression that giving him a bad reputation. I belong to Jesus. I am his. Do you know I also belong to Mary? <laughs> I had a funny experience this afternoon. Mary was having a, a checkup, and uh, she seemed to be in this uh, place a long, long time. And I was out in the car reading and doing some stuff, and, and I got tired, so I walked inside the office. And there was only two other people in the office, and so the lady behind the desk said, uh, "Can you help? Can I help you?" I said, "Yeah, I'm looking for my wife." She said, "Which one?" I said, ma'am, I only have one. She, she said, I didn't mean it that way. I said, well, that's what you said. I said, what's her name? I said, Mary Evans. Oh, she said, uh, she'll be out in a little while. I said, oh, thank you. As I turned to walk around, she went, We have noticed, Elohim, the divine power. It brings us to the second person, Ruach, the divine presence. If Elohim is the creative agent, Ruach 
sympathy, comforting agent. Now please understand, I'm not trying to make a theological statement, I'm just reporting for what scripture says. I don't want you to read into anything and make it into a theological dissertation. It's not, I'm just reporting what's documented in the book. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. As I was reading that in the car this afternoon, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, you know, that sounds like America today. We seem to have lost our identity. We seem to have lost our structure. We seem to have lost our form. We seem to be wandering around in darkness. Everybody wondering what's going to happen next. Where do we go from here? When you listen to either TV or radio, they, they compound the, the problem rather than giving an answer. As I thought of that, it suddenly dawned upon me, I am so grateful that the Holy Spirit, he hovers over the shambles of creation in the same way that he hovers over the crises of our own lives. The Holy Spirit, because we know that one of his forms is that of a dove, we know the dove is a very gentle, we know that a dove is a, is a very particular individual, it will not go to certain places. But I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit is prepared to hover over dark areas. That which is without form, that which is without void, that which is chaotic, the Holy Spirit, he is a reference with life, but he is the person who exhibits life. He is more than life. Isaiah documents some of the Holy Spirit's attributes. Speaking of the Lord Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11, it simply says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Listen. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Is there anyone here tonight? You are struggling with what you're supposed to do? You need a word of wisdom? The Holy Spirit is hovering over your life. Is there anyone here tonight that's questioning, God, what's going on in my life? The spirit of understanding 
is hovering over you to give you insight and understanding of who you are and what's taking place. Anyone here confused? The spirit of counsel. Anyone here weak? The spirit of power. Anyone here who seems to be ignorant or innocent? The spirit of knowledge. Anyone who seems to be dead? The spirit of fear of the Lord is hovering over you. Everything that you need, every answer that you desire is found in the hovering of the Holy Spirit. He's come to hover over your life. He's come to rest upon you. In fact, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Holy Spirit, simply said there are different kind of gifts, but the same Spirit. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. We get words of wisdom, words of knowledge by the same Spirit, faith by the same Spirit, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Friend, whatever you stand in need of tonight, the Holy Spirit is hovering over you with gifts and graces to minister to you at your point of need, not just according to need, but at your point of need for the glory of his name. The Holy Spirit is the agent of salvific life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. You know the incident. Nicodemus said, huh? How can that be? And Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You know one of the things that I worry about? No, it's not money. No, it's not health. I'm an old man. Old men are supposed to have problems physically. The thing that I worry most of all is that the church learns to act like the church without being alive in Jesus. My dad was a pastor. He wasn't a full-time pastor. He, he, he worked as an architect underground. But there'd be times on a Sunday night when because uh, 
uh, physical conditions that I have to stay home. And they always had a babysitter who would look after me while, uh, and she'd simply say, let's play church. And so we played church. We'd sing a few songs, clap our hands. Then we have, we'd do communion. The only problem was, I, I got the bread, she drank all the wine. <laughs> Mine, it, it was grapefruit juice, but she's, nevertheless, she drank it all. <clears throat> and I learned to play church. And I have a fear that it is possible that in the vast crowds of people who attend church today, that they've learned how to act without being alive. Christianity is not an act, it's a life. It's being born from above. It's that the Holy Spirit has formed the spirit of Jesus within you and has sealed you. And that which is within is a driving force. It wants to grow. It wants to evidence itself. It wants to be seen and heard. It wants to change the outward being of our, of our hearts and of our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. The Spirit was hovering over the chaos, hovering over the darkness, not to inspect it, but to change it. And whenever the Holy Spirit hovers over our lives, both yours and mine, it's not just to inspect it, but it's to transform it, to cause that new nature to become a little more like Jesus. That somehow the instinct of my being is that I want to become more like him. The old hymn says it this way, and you can tell how old a guy is by the hymns he remembers. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn by Martin Luther, so that shows how old I am, how firm a foundation he sends to the Lord. But a more modern hymn goes like this, more about Jesus, what I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his loving kindness, see. More of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. Tell me more about Jesus. And the purpose is that I might reveal him a little better and a little more. We have looked at Elohim the divine power. 
we've looked uh, very, very casually at Ruach, the divine presence. Now look at the third one, which is Ama. Ama. And Ama is the divine pronouncement. He is the agent of change. Listen to the way the text says it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Amar, God said. In Jewish theology, they say that Torah was at the beginning of it all. Because his purpose was to bring forth a generation which should love him because of who he is. But the pattern was the Torah. That were the guidelines. That were the railroad tracks upon which humanity could run and flow, you might say. So, well, so indeed. Except I hear an echo. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Ama, what John is saying is what the Jews believed was the Torah. But it is more than the Torah. It's speaking of the living word. Because Jesus is the essence of that word. And when they look at words, Jews have the fallen idea. Words postulate thought. In Greek, and that thought is abstract. For the Jews, words postulate thought. And thought postulates a thinker. But again, in the Hebrew context, words are the expression of breath. So you have Elohim, Ruach, the breath, and Amar, 
the word. I'm not making a theological statement. I'm just pointing out what the word says. That the God of power and the one of compassion breathed and came forth the word. I submit to you tonight as it has been said and I'm, I close with unbelievable ease and deliberate consciousness the omnipotent Lord articulated his will and it was instantaneously accomplished tonight as you go home, look for the presence of Jesus. As you go home tonight, remind yourself, no matter what your situation, that's hovering over you, the spirit of life. As you go home tonight, remember, Elohim is the God of all power and all might. And he is the one who loves us and has given himself for us for the glory of his name. Next week, we will look at the three places that's documented in these verses. I hope you'll find it interesting. Lord Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart have been pleasing to you. Like John Wesley, Lord, I wish I had a thousand tongues to declare your praise and to declare your glory. But because I have simply one and a very, very, very simple mind, I pray that that which has come forth tonight will resound to your praise and to the honor of your name. For I ask you in Jesus' name.